Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And I'd like to welcome you to the summer series where I will share or review three of the most popular episodes during 2022, just in case you missed it or maybe uh, it's an easy reminder. So the first or most popular episode this year was about economics and I called it Economics 101 where I shared some foundations of economic principles and the idea behind that podcast was podcast topic was really that if we understand just the basics of um, economics, it really helps us understand the performance in markets, behavior of markets. Uh, When we read market commentary and predictions, it helps us sort of understand that. Uh, And I think uh, more information really empowers us. So if we understand more about what's going on, um, it's less likely we're going to panic or be concerned uh, if we can kind of see through you know, the, the short-termism of uh, inevitable market commentary, uh, really it is uh, very fearful and fear-based. Uh, you know, that, there's that saying, if it bleeds, it leads. And certainly the media media feeds off that. So I thought it was a great idea then to go through some of those basic economic principles, uh, notwithstanding I really enjoyed economics at university. I did a major in it. So uh, anyway, let's get into the episode and I hope you enjoy it. Now, I realise economics isn't an exciting topic for everyone, uh, and maybe not everyone listening in here today, but the reality is that if you can understand some um, basic economic principles, it really helps with your understanding of, you know, financial market commentary, um, political rhetoric, uh, assessment of, you know, your own sort of assessment, I guess, of economic risks and opportunities. So what I wanted to do here today is discuss six sort of basic economic principles. And I'm going to try and explain them to you in really simple terms uh, so that uh, hopefully it resonates and it'll provide that foundation that makes things a little bit more understandable. So let's get into it. Um, The first one is the basic law of supply and demand. And whilst it, it is relatively easy to understand or it's easy to sort of gloss over, I guess, it really does explain a lot of behavior um, and it really does, uh, I think, help predict, you know, where markets will move next. Uh, and it's really the cornerstone of economic theory. So the law of demand states that as the price of a product or service rises, that its level of demand for that particular product or service falls, uh, holding all other factors uh, equal, of course. And so this aligns just with basic logic, right? So, you know, if a takeaway coffee is $3, Lots of people see value in that uh, and can afford to pay $3. Now, if coffee went to $10, uh, takeaway coffee, you know, a lot of people are either going to say, I can't afford it, or, you know, the value just isn't there for me. It's a ripoff, so I'm not going to buy it anymore. So really, when you chart price and quantity, uh, the demand curve uh, slopes downwards. So, you know, the higher the price, the less the quantity and so forth. And, and to see these di- diagrams, I've, I've drawn them um, and you'll see the link in the show notes and uh, on the blog on the website. Uh, so then the law of supply is opposite to demand. And that is the law of supply says that as the price of a product or service um, increases, then the economy or business want to supply higher quantities of that product or service. 
And so again, it aligns with common sense because um, if the price of, if everyone's happy to pay $10 for a takeaway coffee, you're going to see a lot more cafes crop up or open up, you know, because it's, it's very profitable. The higher the price, you know, the more the quantity. And so the economy's job then is to find an equilibrium, an equilibrium between demand and supply, and that will then find the equilibrium quantity of that product or service and then the equilibrium price. And that is the price at which a producer can sell all the units that the producer wants and the buyer can buy all the units that they want as well. And that's really the equilibrium. And so if we um, take the law of supply and demand and apply it to a real-life scenario, a current scenario, and I know it's being talked about uh, a lot in the media when the price of lettuce and so forth, um, but the problem is that as supply contracts, uh, price has to rise because um, everyone wants to buy lettuce for $2, but maybe only 50% of people want to pay $4 or $6 or whatever it might be uh, this week. And so as price rises, demand falls and the market finds a a new equilibrium. And we know supply has um, contracted um, because of supply chains and um, the floods and so forth. Now, when supply returns to normal, we also know the supply curve will then move down. And again, I've drawn this in a chart just to, you know, a picture paints a thousand words, I guess. Uh, and um, and the supply curve will move down again and the new equilibrium price will be found. And one day, uh, hopefully soon, uh, lettuces will cost $2 or, again, whatever they normally cost. So really, supply and demand explains a lot of economic behaviours uh, and help you sort of forecast what might happen in the future uh, should demand or supply change. Okay, the next one I want to talk about is economic output and growth, which is a very, very important measure, of course, uh, and really goes towards the health of an economy. Uh, And the main measure used to measure um, economic output is gross domestic product, or GDP. Um, And there's uh, really four components uh, that contribute to GDP or to calculate GDP. The first one is consumer spending plus government spending plus investment, plus net exports. And if you add those four components together, you can calculate a country's GDP, gross domestic product. So let's talk about each of those. So consumer spending is really, you know, that's really what we're spending on a day-to-day basis. So what private households spend. And consumer spending is really influenced by things like the level of employment, uh, wage growth, consumer confidence. Yeah, they're the main things that really impact um, consumer spending and, and consumer confidence is critical in that uh, regard. So if people are feeling really uncertain, uh, they will stop spending or reduce the expenditure. Approximately 50% of Australia's GDP is driven by consumer spending and that's important to know because therefore consumer confidence and unemployment and wage growth and those sorts of things are therefore really, really important. Next is government spending. And that really includes anything like expenditure on equipment, uh, infrastructure, public service payroll, really anything that's driven by the government. Uh, And it accounts for about 25% of of GDP, uh, although it's been as high as 27, 28% over the last couple of years due to the COVID support measures. The next component is then investment. uh, And that really refers to 
um, private domestic investment, including investment in businesses. So if a business is building a new um, manufacturing plant or something like that. Uh, also, residential property construction is included in investment. Uh, and then business inventory. So if people increase stock levels and so forth, they're holding more stock. Uh, that will go towards investment because obviously business is investing in holding greater levels of stock, hopefully for future uh, to, to fulfill future demand. Investment accounts for 22%, around 22% of total GDP. And the last item is net exports. Uh, and they're calculated as by saying, uh, calculating the value of exports less what we import. Uh, and the net amount is the benefit, the productivity that Australia is generating. Uh, and net exports account for about 3% of total GDP. So it's not a big amount. Uh, but the, the, that's probably because um, there's only a $10 billion difference between imports and exports. So uh, exports are worth about $50 billion, uh, less uh, imports with about $40 billion. So, you know, if one of those figures changes materially, uh, well, that can have a big impact on GDP. So it's important to appreciate and understand the components of GDP, how it all works. And that way, when we, we start um, listening to people about, you know, falling commodity prices and what impact that might have on GDP and those sorts of things, at least then you've got a better understanding of how are they measuring, what are the components and um, where is the, the sensitive areas. But really consumer confidence, um, wage growth and unemployment um, go a long way to building a very healthy economy. So let's now talk about fiscal and monetary policy because there's two ways to really manage GDP and GDP growth, uh, and that really is either fiscal or monetary policy. So fiscal policy refers to things like government spending and taxation. Um, so the government can stimulate an economy by either reforming or cutting taxes uh, or increasing spending on things like infrastructure and so forth. And certainly over the last couple of years, government spending in most developed economies has increased, you know, helped the economy through the impacts of COVID lockdowns and so forth. But that's why the federal budget each year is an important one to listen into, uh, because that really informs, you know, how much the government is going to spend, uh, where it's going to go, and therefore, w will it be um, stimulatory from an economic perspective? The second way we can manage or a government can manage uh, GDP, uh, growth and, and economic prosperity is through monetary policy. And that really refers to changing money supply. So the amount of money that's in the economy, uh, if you inject more money in the economy, it has a stimulatory effect uh, because there's more money to spend and invest. So, you know, more money will go into investment, private consumption, all those elements of GDP. There's two primary ways that a government can change money supply. The first one is increasing the interest rate. So the RBA increases the cash rate. Uh, that means the cost of borrowings rise uh, and more uh, interest is paid to the Reserve Bank. Um, the, the, the banks actually pay it and the banks charge us and then uh, pass it on to the Reserve Bank. So therefore, the Reserve Bank is reducing money supply. It's pulling money out of the economy. Uh, the second way is through quantitative easing, so buying and selling of bonds. And again, you know, over the last uh, couple of years, the the RBA has participated in um, issuing bonds to get some more money out into the economy to increase that money supply. So monetary policy is really around interest rates and quantitative easing. Fiscal policy is really around government spending and taxes. 
And those two uh, elements or two levers, I guess, can have an influence on overall economic prosperity. Okay, let's talk about employment or unemployment maybe as a, as a measure because it's something that really dominates the headline. And of course, you know, the more people that have a job, the more spending uh, consumers will do and that's good for the overall economy. Uh, so the big measure that's talked about is the unemployment rate. And, and essentially what that measures is the number of people that are willing to work at least an hour a week uh, that, are, that are not able to find employment. So you've got to be looking for work to be incl- included in that unemployment figure. Uh, and if someone's not looking for work, well, clearly they're not unemployed because they never want to be employed in the first place. Um, the one hour a week has, uh, as a measure has uh, garnished a lot of, uh, I guess, attention from the media. Um, is that enough? Well, really, there's not too many people out there that just say, I just only want to work one hour. You know, most people are working sort of part-time and it might be, I don't know, five to ten hours at least, I would have thought. Um, so the fact that we've got one hour is not not that big a deal from my perspective. The next key employment measure to look out for is what's called the participation rate. Uh, and that's the proportion of working age population that are either employed or looking for work. Um, it's also referred to as labour force. And, and higher participation rate uh, is a good sign of a healthy economy um, because obviously everyone's engaged or looking for work um, and we want to keep that participation rate high. Um, also, if um, uh, sentiment changes, uh, uh, it's possible that unemployment stays the same because the participation rate falls. So if we start to feel uh, a little bit down by the economy, you know, people will turn around and go, you know what, I'm not going to look for a job um, because I don't think there are any out there. So you've got to look at the unemployment rate and the participation rate together to get a good um, picture of where things are at. The last one is wage inflation, and that's obviously also important um, because it tells us you know, whether people's incomes are rising uh, and at the moment, for example, whether they're increasing at the same pace as, as prices to in order to maintain you know, people's standard of living. Um, you want some wage inflation because with wage inflation, that means consumers continue to spend and spend more. And, and again, that contributes to GDP. Remember, 50% of GDPs from consumers or more than 50%. So that's a big factor. The next uh, topic was to talk about the exchange rate. Uh, so it's often measured um, by comparison to the US dollar. Um, and typically the Aussie dollar trades somewhere between 60 and 75 cents, uh, US cents, um, and, and often reported on the TV at night and so forth. So what, what is the importance of the exchange rate? Well, firstly, if a country has a really stable currency, um, uh, then it's likely to attract international trading partners uh, that are willing to trade in the domicile uh, currency, uh, so that's important too. And secondly, the value of uh, a country's currency will either make their Im- imports or exports more attractive, uh, you know, in terms of relative value. So if I'm paying US dollars for an Australian product uh, and the Aussie dollar is undervalued, then um, as a buyer of those exports, you know, I'm attracted to that because they're now relatively cheaper. But an undervalued Aussie dollar might be great for exports, but Unfortunately, it makes importing more expensive and given Australia is not a big uh, manufacturer from a country perspective, we do import uh, a significant amount, you know, $40 billion a year. Uh, and so if our exchange rate was to fall, uh, obviously that increases 
Uh, it could then get passed or almost always get passed along to consumers. Uh, and we know law of supply and demand kick in then and um, as prices rise, demand falls. So it's not great for the economy. Uh, so really what you want from an exchange rate perspective is you want the currency to trade as close to fair value as possible. You don't want it to be under or overvalued. Um, so it feels like then the market's getting a fair exchange in value. Um, the RBA can manage uh, Australia's currency if it does get too out of control. They normally do it with interest rates rather than um, we, we on the money markets, but they can. Australia dollar was floated um, in 1984, which means that um, the market determines its value uh, and the RBA can play in that market if it wants to, uh, to manage the currency. But that's why the currency is important and if it ever gets uh, wildly overvalued or undervalued, it can have flow-on effects to the domestic economy. The last topic I wanted to talk about, which is uh, certainly dominating the airways at the moment, is inflation. Uh, and so, again, the law of uh, supply and demand explain um, increases of demand will translate to higher prices if we're holding supply constant. So unless if supply doesn't increase in line with demand, then prices must increase, and that's called inflation. Now, of course, it's a good sign for economy because it shows the economy is growing, um, but you want the economy's capacity to grow uh, also at a, at a relatively similar pace, so that is its supply side. Now, if inflation gets out of control, you know, inflation's too fast and wages don't increase, well, that has a negative impact uh, in terms of you know uh, affordability, standard living, those sorts of things, everything that's been spoken about at the moment. But also, you don't want wages to, you know, if inflation is at a high rate and then wages are also at a high rate, um, you potentially risk uh, hyperinflation and that that has a lot of negative side effects as well as um, falling private wealth, uh, you know, hoarding of goods, uh, falling currency and so on. So really what you want is you don't want inflation too low and you don't want inflation too high. You want a, a nice level of inflation and that's why the RBA's job is to really manage monetary policy uh, to maintain an inflation rate of somewhere between 2 and 3% on a sustainable basis. And if wage inflation is at least that, uh, then you've got an economy that's probably pretty robust that's, that's growing at a sustainable level, and that's really the aim. Okay, that's about it. So we've talked about supply and demand, uh, GDP and um, its components of so forth. Uh, we've also then talked about um, managing GDP, uh, employment, so that's really unemployment rate, participation rate, why the exchange rate is important, and managing inflation. I hope this really simple and quick summary uh, helps people uh, uh, gain a better understanding for economic commentary and also understanding how all these um, matters sort of are interrelated and have flow-on effects with each other. Uh, and hopefully what it does is, you know, empower you to make uh, better decisions and uh, and also um, understand analysis and commentary uh, a little bit more than you otherwise would have. Okay, that's it for me for this week. Until next week, bye for now.